think we're going, we'll go ahead and get started. We're going to pick up right where we left off last time, which is um, uh, session three sheet, so hopefully we brought that. Uh, we're going to start with the call of Matthias. And last time we talked about apostles and what they were. I got a question for Yeah. I thought about this, boy, I couldn't even remember where I heard this. Right here under my note. Are there any apostles today? The answer was no. No. So that brings for me the question, what does it say about the, the idea of apostolic succession? Ooh. Uh, well, we'll get to session three the rest of the next week. <laughs> Just yeah, no, that's a great question. Because for a very long time, the idea of how you know what church is is because of apostolic succession. The idea of apostolic succession is that the apostles passed down um, their authority and their teaching throughout the generations. So in the Catholic Church, for example, they would say that their bishops have apostolic succession. What they mean is, is that um, Peter, who they would say is the first pope, um, ordained Linus, the next pope, who ordained, who's the third pope, vicar? <laughs> kept on doing that so that there's this continuous line where people have passed down through uh, the laying on of hands the office of bishop in the church. Okay? And uh, even to the point in North Dakota, uh, where we lived before we moved here, there was a convent in town. And uh, a lot of our church members ended up working at the convent because they also had a retreat center in the convent. So they did laundry and cooked food and, and cleaned things like that in the convent. Um, and occasionally, one or two of the nuns would have a theological discussion with our church members. And they would say, your pastor looks like a pastor. He sounds like a pastor. He smells like a Okay, maybe not. Um, but, he, he does all these pastor things, but he's not a pastor because he does not have apostolic succession. Delaying on of hands all the way back. So what do we say about that? Well, we would say two things. Number one, the office of apostle does not exist anymore. But we do have the office of pastor. And then this is, this is actually kind of a good lead into what we're going to talk about today. What is the office of pastor and how does one get into it? It's not merely the laying on of hands that puts someone in the office. That's not the thing that's most important succession-wise. The most important thing succession-wise is actually what? The teaching. What does the church teach? And this is why the book of Acts is such a great book for us to look at. Because we find out when we read the book of Acts that what we teach and preach is the exact same as what the apostles preached and taught. And that that theology, that dogma or doctrine has been passed on from generation to generation. And we have inherited it through the church. And that that is then our understanding of what apostolic succession would be, is that we teach the exact same thing that the apostles taught um, 2,000 years ago. Then another thing I've heard debated, and I've just heard this in the last three or four years, a debate over the apostolic age. Some people say that it ended when the last of the twelve died because they were the only ones that were given authority to actually heal people. And, and other people will say, oh no, the apostolic age continues even to today. Yeah. Um, and we're going to talk about that as we go through the book of Acts in more detail. So the quick answer would be um, the apostolic age does end with the death of the last apostle. But the preaching and teaching of the word continues on 
not in the office of apostle, but in the office of the holy ministry, which is not 100% the same, but it is doing a lot of the same things and is pretty close to the same. The difference, again, is I am not an eyewitness of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Even Pastor Poppy, as old as he is, no, just kidding, okay? he is not an eyewitness of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We receive that message from the eyewitnesses, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, uh, which are all written records of the apostles' teaching and preaching. And so we're not firsthand viewers, we're secondary viewers, but we still preach the word the same way, we still baptize the same way, we still have the Lord's Supper the same way. We're still doing a lot of those things, but we're not apostles, we're pastors. We'll see some of that taking place when we get to places like um, St. Stephen, uh, when it talks about the ordination and call of St. Stephen uh, leading up to his martyrdom in Jerusalem. Uh, we'll see that when we talk about people like Timothy and Titus and Luke, who are pastors, but they're not apostles. They're not eyewitness viewers of Jesus, and they also are not eyewitnesses who are sent out uh, like we read in Acts chapter 1, by Jesus to preach and teach the eyewitness account. They're there to baptize and preach based on the word. Does that kind of at least lay a foundation? And hopefully that's what we'll see as we look through uh, some more of the book of Acts going forward also. Good question. That, see, it wasn't as long as we thought. Um, one, one tangent on that apostolic succession thing, two tangents. The Book of Concord, if you read the Book of Concord, what we're saying in that is that we are actually the real Catholic Church. Not the Roman Catholic Church, but we're the Catholic Church. Catholic meaning universal, Catholicos, the Greek word, meaning we preach, teach, um, and administer everything the way that the church always has in every time and every place. And we say that the ones who have erred or made a mistake are the Roman Catholics. And it, it's in a variety of ways which we don't have time to talk about. But we're the real Catholics, and so we are actually the ones following an apostolic succession because we do what the apostles actually did. Um, the second tangent, when I, let's see, how many years ago was it? Eight years ago, seven years ago? Um, I was in Kenya, Africa, and uh, on a trip, we were, we were raising funds for orphan rescue centers there, and um, learning what they do. They have orphan rescue centers. Their parents have died from the AIDS pandemic. And uh, so we have a, there's a church with a dormitory and a school all in one location. And then the AIDS orphans are able to go there and have food and housing and get a Christian education so that they're not just roaming the streets. The bishop of the Kenyan Lutheran Church when I was there was ordained by Swedish Lutherans. And during the Reformation, the entire country of Sweden became Lutheran, including the bishops, who had apostolic succession by just the laying out of hands. And when I was there, the bishop of the Kenyan Lutheran Church put his hands on me and said, now you can tell everyone you have apostolic succession in the Catholic way. <laughs> so, there you go. I think Pastor Poppy might have the same story in a different way. Because he, that's what this Kenyan guy does. <laughs> so, all right. Other questions? So building on that, what we're going to talk about today is how a pastor 
or in this case, we're going to start with an apostle, is placed into the office of the holy ministry. And we're going to read about that from Acts chapter 1. And so we're going to start Acts chapter 1 on our sheet from last week. Um, I, I see a couple new people. Um, maybe the vicar can quick make a photocopy of one uh, or two. Um, so I don't know if we have any more left. Uh, we're going to start down here at number 3 with um, reading Acts 15 uh, through 26. 15 through 26. Uh, so Acts 1, 15 through 26. And we'll just, uh, uh, can we start up here with you uh, ladies? Acts 1, we're going to start with 15 and we're going to read all the way through the end of the chapter. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of person was all about 120. And said, Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by mouth by the mouth of David, coming concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. He, he was one of our number and shared in this ministry. With the reward he got for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akadama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must be a witness with us of his resurrection. And they come forward too. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called the Justice and Matthias, and they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen. Chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go his own to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias. And he was numbered with the 11 apostles. All right. There we see um, a couple things taking place. So we're going to take them in order. Okay, now we start uh, this particular section of the book of Acts with these words. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. Now, what does it mean that Peter stands up among the apostles? This is important. It means that he was sitting and then he stood up. It does not mean that out of all the twelve, Peter was the vicar of Christ, okay, or uh, the Pope. It means that he's going to address them all while they're together, and so he stands up to talk to them. Okay? And it makes sense, because what's it say? The company of the persons was in all about 120. We don't have 120 people here. But if I sit like this to teach Bible class um, in this room, is it easy to address all of you? No. No, right? I can't even see a few tables over here. So what do I do to address you all? I... Stand up. So it is not instituting the office of the papacy or making Peter the Pope. He is, in a certain sense, kind of a spiritual theological leader, but they are all twelve going to be apostles. And so he's giving a speech. He's, in fact, you could see this taking place as a part of the worship service when they're all gathered together. Okay? And because they're all gathered together, and it's in a sense a worship service, he's also going to give his speech based upon 
What do we preach on? Oh, I gave it away. What do we do when we all get together? Right. We, have, we preach. And what's the basis for our sermons? What's it supposed to be? Scripture. Scripture. Okay? This is what Peter's going to do. He's going to give a devotion about what the Scripture says, specifically regarding Judas and the office of apostle. Okay? And so this is what he does. This is what his goal is. This is what he's going to do. So, he says, this is what the Bible says. Scripture had to be fulfilled, verse 16, in regards to Judas, as was written about by David concerning Judas many, many years ago. And remember, David, in your brain, David is about 1000 B.C., Okay, so this is a thousand years after time of David. Peter says, I think the Bible, when David wrote in the Psalms, was foretelling about Judas. Okay, and it's not just David that does so. In addition to David, which we have from the book of Psalms there, may his camp be desolate, let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. We also have other scripture passages that teach us about Judas. Okay? Uh, and so, we have several of these written down at the bottom of the page. 3BI. Okay? So we have Zechariah 11, verse 12. Would someone look that one up? We have Exodus 37, 28. Would someone look that up? Um, we have Matthew 27, 9 through 10, and we have the entire chapter of Jeremiah 32. Uh, we don't have to read all of Jeremiah 32, but we'll quick look at it here. So Zechariah 11, to begin with. Zechariah 11. Uh, verse 12. Then I said to them, if it seems good to give you, to you, give me my wages, but not keep them. And they weighed out as many wages, 30 pieces of silver. Okay. Why is this scripture passage, written by Zechariah, hundreds of years before Jesus, teach us about Judas? How much money did Judas get for betraying Jesus? 30 pieces of silver, right? Okay. Um, and so we have this fulfillment. Now, and I just want to be completely clear about this, too, as we're talking about Judas. Is the scripture foretelling really about Judas or someone else? Jesus. Jesus, right? We're learning about the passion of Jesus, okay? That the Messiah is going to be handed over for 30 pieces of silver, okay? That's important. We, we kind of sometimes get an obsession with Judas, right? Uh, even Jesus Christ Superstar isn't really about Jesus that much. What's it mostly about? Judas. Judas, right? Every time I look at you, I don't understand. Right? I won't say anything. Okay? It's, it, we need to have our attention on Jesus, who is betrayed for these 30 pieces of silver. Okay, uh, Exodus 37, 28. Exodus 37, 28. They made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold. Ooh, that's not the right verse. No wonder. I've got a typo here then. All right, let's go to Matthew then. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him, on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed. All right. What's Matthew tell us? Where is this foretold? In Jeremiah. In Jeremiah, which is where we're going to look next, right? Um, Jeremiah 32. Just kind of turn there. Jeremiah 32. I don't know, where was it? The whole thing? 
Well, let's, uh, why don't you skim it? You can see right there at the top, um, what's your heading say? Jeremiah buys a field. Great. Jeremiah buys a field. Well, that, that's not that big of a deal, right? How many of you have bought a field before? Okay, why is that foretelling the passion of Christ? What did Matthew say? It tells how much they paid to, to buy the silver. Matthew said they got 30 pieces of silver, as was foretold by... Jeremiah. Was it Jeremiah that said the 30 pieces of silver? No, sent to Israel. What, where do we read about the 30 pieces of silver? Zechariah. So why does he say Jeremiah? Because he goes on and he says, what did they do with the 30 pieces of silver? Bought a field, right? What field? Right. What for? Poor people. Poor people are going to be buried there, starting with the first one who was Judas, who died there. Okay? So, they, you, you know what happened. They gave Judas the 30 pieces of silver. He had that. And this is what we were going to look at in Exodus. Exodus says the 30 pieces of silver is a price that you bring to the temple um, for the purpose of, uh, what's the word, remittance of sin when, when you've wronged someone. You bring your silver to the priest, and the priest makes a sacrifice on your behalf to forgive you. Okay? So they give Judas the 30 pieces of silver to turn Christ over. And what does Judas feel when he sees Jesus arrested, beaten, and going to be crucified? Guilty. Guilt. What's he do with the 30 pieces of silver when he feels guilt? Takes it back. He goes to the temple, like the Torah says in Exodus, not 32, right? <laughs> Whatever it is. He brings it to the temple. And what do the priests tell Judas? They said, we can't take this. This is blood money. Deal with it yourself. Yikes. Now, is that what pastors are supposed to say? Or priests? No. <laughs> no. If you feel guilty, if Maureen feels guilty uh, about something, and she comes in and she says, Pastor, I feel really guilty because... You know, um, X, Y, and Z, right? But we could pick on the vicar. Maybe that'd be easier. Vicar has murdered his neighbor's cat. And he feels guilty about it. He comes in and he confesses. If I say, go deal with it yourself, am I being a faithful pastor? No. no. What am I supposed to say? It's supposed to be forgiven. You've been forgiven. Especially if he's fulfilling the law by bringing in the things for the sacrifice on that reason. So they tell Judas to deal with it himself, and he despairs. When pastors tell people to deal with things themselves, what happens? The people despair. And that's what Judas did, and so he hangs himself. But first, before he goes and hangs himself, he takes the silver and he throws it in there. And that's when they say, we can't keep this, it's blood money. And they go by the field. Now, why is that fulfillment not only of Zechariah, but also of Jeremiah 32? What's Jeremiah do, according to the heading? He goes and he buys a field. Tradition, and this is not provable in any way, shape, or form, tradition says it's the same field. Jeremiah bought the field 586 years before the birth of Jesus. And then that's where Judas dies. And then that's the field that is bought with the blood money from Judas's uh, betrayal of Christ. That's why Matthew then says, 30 pieces of silver, they bought a field to fulfill Jeremiah. Because he thinks you're going to remember Zechariah and the 30 pieces of silver. And he wants you to know it's also fulfilling Jeremiah, where Jeremiah bought the field. 
Do I sound like a crazy person with foil wrapped around my head pointing at <laughs> charts? Does that make sense? Okay, yes, the ring. Yep. It's still silver, and he's still buying the field. And the tradition is it's the same field, and that it is for telling. It's not a one-on-one. -on -one. What's that? The amount doesn't Correct. It's it's a different way of measuring too. Uh, a shekel in Hebrew is a weight. Okay? Whereas in the New Testament it's not weight, it's pieces. Coins. So don't let the number of silver pieces or the whatever throw you off. It's still foretelling Jesus. Okay. Questions? Did he fall on the sword or hang himself? What the scripture says is that he hangs himself. Um, and then the Matthew account tells us, uh, oh no, it's in the Acts account, isn't it? What happens to his body? It splits open. It splits open. And his guts come out. Why? What well, is the field of blood? Have you ever driven down uh, Nebraska Highway in July and seen a deer or a raccoon on the side of the road? <laughs> what happens to the deer or raccoon on the side of the road when it gets hot? Close. Close. Right? And then even to the point where what can happen? I hope none of us have seen that up close. <laughs> but that's the thing that happens with Judas. It's that he bloats in the sun and his guts spill out as a result. Why? He hangs himself right before the Passover. And nobody wants to deal with his body. Because what happens if you deal with a dead body? Do you want to be unclean before the Passover? No. No. There's all sorts of church things going on, and so they don't do it. Now, they take care of Jesus' body um, because those people loved him. Who's the one that's loving Judas at that time? Nobody. Nobody. He, he's burned a lot of bridges. Yeah. It also says that they're fulfilling uh, something written in the book of Psalms. 20, verse 20, when Peter saying, If fulfill something in the book of Psalms, may this place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may it never take this place of leadership. Yes. Those, um, and um, that's Peter's direct reference for his devotion that he's doing, is the Psalms. Yes. So, we have the Psalms, we have Zechariah, we have Exodus where it talks about going to see the priest when you've done something wrong, which I have the wrong reference for, I apologize. Matthew 27 and Jeremiah 32, all of these prophecies are fulfilled in the death of Judas. Okay? All right. Other questions about Pastor, that? I have a question. Yes. Um, you said uh, Judas died before the Passover. I always thought the Passover started with Palm Sunday through Easter. Is the Passover time separate from that? It is different than that. Um, we, we Christians call that Holy Week. The Passover would be the end of Holy Week. The Passover technically is the sunset on Friday through to the sunset on Saturday. That's Passover day. Now you say, Pastor, 
That's really nice, but Jesus and his disciples had Passover on Thursday, Monday, Thursday. Why is that? Okay. Um, how many people are there celebrating the Passover? It's hard for us to say. Jerusalem normally is a town of 26,000 people. Okay, which is about uh, the number of people. Is it still Grand Island about that? Carney? Okay, Carney. It's about the same number of people as Carney. But it is also a town that is one mile north-south and one mile east-west. And most of the houses are little two-story houses, okay, with three rooms. Um, there are some mansions. We've seen, uh, archaeologically speaking, the remains of some mansions. But let's just be honest. If you have a mansion, are you going to let people come in and have Passover in your house? Do, do the people uh, with mansions in L.A. just let us go and have a meal in there whenever we want to? No, no right? Okay, maybe they do. I don't know. I don't want to speak more to you. So what happened in the time of Christ in First Temple Judaism times is that the Passover would be celebrated for several days in and around the actual Passover, because you couldn't get everybody into the temple, get the animals slaughtered, cooked, and fed to the people, because uh, there would be, in that town, one mile by one mile, according to Josephus, who writes a few years later, about one million people in the town for the Passover. Okay? So, one mile by one mile, a million people, how do you get all the animals slaughtered, cooked, the bread made, etc.? It ends up taking several days. Jesus has his Passover with the disciples the day before, the, the technical Passover. All those days, there are probably some having the Passover, depending on when they can reserve the room. But technically, the Passover you're saying is one day? One day. One day. I one day. realize that. So there's the complicated historical bit. <laughs> um, we know this from Josephus because. The Romans were besieging Jerusalem already when the Passover came. And the people who were pilgrims were coming to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover and said to our future emperor Titus, uh, can we go in and have the Passover and then we'll leave and you guys can keep on besieging um, these rebels. And Titus said, absolutely, go on in. And then he never let them back out. Why? When you have a million people in the town, it's a lot harder to feed them, and it made the siege much, much shorter, historically speaking. Okay? There are some who say Josephus exaggerates the numbers a little bit. Even if he does, there's a lot of people that come to the castle. Okay. Okay, let's keep going then. Um, let's see. Got the right sheet here. Next, we're gonna. Uh, this is the last bit about Judas um, to start with. John six seventy and seventy one. It's not just the Old Testament that tells us what was going to happen with Judas. Who else does? Jesus himself, John 6, 70-71. Notice this is John 6, which is a long ways before the crucifixion of Jesus. Christ knew all along what Judas was going to do. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you to the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon is for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. All right. Jesus knew who it was going to be. And what does he say about the one he's talking about? He chose him. He was chosen. He, who was chosen in what Jesus says? This is important. Judas was chosen by Jesus. Chosen as a part of the twelve. The twelve apostles all together are chosen. 
even though one of them is, this is what we're looking for, a devil. Okay, And it's not that Judas is a demon, but does he have faith? The right faith? No. If we don't have the right faith, what are we? In a sense, we're a devil in that regard. We don't have um, God driving out sin and death and the devil from our hearts. Okay? So, Jesus knew, um, and so he knew ahead of time, he foretells it months in advance that that's what's going to happen. Yet, let alone in Zechariah and Jeremiah and in Exodus, who's the one that's foretelling Judas thousands of years before? God. God already knew all this was going to take place. And then like Marilyn said, we also have Peter quoting Psalms. Two Psalms. Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. So let's uh, look at those real quick as well. Psalm 69, let's read verses 22 through 28. Psalm 69 um, is a really good one. Psalm 69, the entire thing let their own table before them become a snare, and when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indigna indignation upon them, and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be dissolution, let no one dwell in their tents. For they persecute him when you, whom you have struck down, and they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. Okay, Jesus, or sorry, Peter only quotes the one verse, but you look at the section around there. Does it sound very good for Judas? No. And Peter, in, in, we have just that small quote, but when we have that whole quote, it brings to mind the entire psalm. And if you look at the entire psalm, the entire psalm is about the crucifixion of Jesus, right? Um, talks about my eyes grow dim, I'm weary of crying out, my throat is parched, okay? Um, they humiliate me and hate me without cause. They want to destroy me. Um, it talks about all those things. It's picturing Christ on the cross, and in the midst of it, it talks about someone has betrayed him. May their camp be desolate. Let them no longer be among the living. Punishment upon punishment. This is what Peter is quoting when he's giving this devotion about the Apostle Judas, the disciple Judas. We also have quoting Psalm 109, which is the second passage there. Psalm 109, verses 6 through 15. 6 through 15. Point an evil man to oppose him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him be found guilty and May his prayers condemn him. May his days be few. May another take his place of leadership. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children be wandering beggars. May they be driven from their room homes. May a creditor seize all he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his labor. May no one extend kindness to him or take pity on his fatherless children. May his descendants be cut off and their names blotted out from the next generation. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord, and may the sin of his mother never be blotted out. May their sins always remain before the Lord, that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth. Next time you're mad at someone, just quote this song. <laughs> this is what Peter's quoting about Judas as well. Specifically, may someone else take his office. Okay? Uh, may someone else take his position of leadership, I think was the translation that we have. This, this is the idea with Judas. He betrayed God, confessing that he didn't have faith in who Jesus said that he was. And as a result, according to God's word, these are the punishments that he deserves. Okay? So this is what happens to Judas. Now, letter D there. Only Matthew's gospel, as well as the book of Acts, tells us about the death of Judas. Why? Because it's not the important part of the story. What other death happens on that day that is way more important than the death of Judas? Jesus. Jesus. 
Should we ever lose sight of Jesus for sake of Judas? No. Did I say that the right way? Okay. We ought to have our focus completely on Jesus. But, Acts mentions it here because it's important. Why is Matthias going to be the replacement? He's an eyewitness, and because there, there's a need for a replacement, right? So, what, what it is, why Luke brings it up is like this. What if we started a conversation right now about getting a new senior pastor? Your pastor Poppy's getting kind of old, right? What do you think we could get to replace him? Would we do that now? Why not? Because he's still the pastor, he's still here. So, when we're talking about, well, they picked Matthias, we have to know, why did they have to pick Matthias? What happened to the other guy? Oh yeah, he hung himself. <laughs> That's why they need a replacement apostle for Judas. Does that make sense? Okay. So we're not replacing Pastor Pop yet. <laughs> Maybe the associate pastor, we can talk just easy. Is it important for them to have 12? I think it is important for apostleship because it's the mirror image of the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament. Yes. And so to understand that this is the complete testimony, complete word, and it's from these 12 people, and this is the foundation of the church, not the men, but the word they preach. God does this for bookend purposes, for mirroring purposes, so that we understand that. Because God is very, very organized in that way. And so when we get to the book of Revelation, we see 24 elders sitting before the throne of God. Why 24? 12 from, the Old, 12 from the Old Testament, 12 from the New Testament, all with one message, all about God, who's the center. So that's, that's why the 12 on either side. Okay, requirements for being an apostle. I gotta hustle. <laughs> they are to be eyewitnesses of all that Jesus did. Okay, uh, and that is exactly what they say. Okay, uh, Acts 1, verse 21. One of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, one of these men must become a witness to what? Resurrection. Resurrection. Now, if you noticed, when do the Gospels generally start? What's the first big thing? birth of Jesus. We have the birth of Jesus in Luke, and we have the birth of Jesus in Matthew, and it's slightly, they're, they're not exactly the same length. Luke's much longer, Matthew's much shorter. Beyond that, in the other ones, what's the first thing that all four Gospels have in common? Maybe that's the way to ask it. John the Baptist. The baptism of Jesus. That's what Peter says. We want them to start being witnesses when Jesus was baptized. And what's the end event that they want them to have witnessed? Resurrection. Not just the resurrection, but after that, when Jesus was, we learned about last week, taken up, ascended into heaven. All of that time is what the eyewitness needs to see. Okay? So, eyewitnesses, so that they can preach faithfully when the work of the church begins. We could say too, and um, maybe this is not a can of worms to open here, but you'll notice too he says we need one of the men. This is one of the places where, why do we have only boy pastors? Because that's what the scripture teaches. Does it mean that women are less valuable? Does it mean that a woman couldn't understand the faith as well as a man? No, but we have this order built in. And that, that's just a real brief thing. We don't need to, to spend a lot of time on that right now. Maybe we could do a Bible study on it at a different time. Okay. Eyewitnesses of all that Jesus did. This is the same thing that it says in 1 John, 
1, 1 through 3. Somebody read that. <laughs> That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with, with the Father, and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father, and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Okay, who's writing those words, Karen? Who's the one who wrote that down the first time? John. John. <laughs> the Apostle John. Um, John from um, the fishing boat. John, um, the brother of James. John, the son of thunder. That John is writing this. And what's he say? That which we have heard, that which we have seen and looked upon, that which we have touched with our own hands. What's John saying about himself? Yeah, he was present. He heard Jesus. He saw Jesus. And he touched Jesus. And the touching Jesus part makes me think of what? That's in John's Gospel. A week after Easter, Jesus shows up and Thomas hasn't seen him. And Jesus says what? Here, put your finger in this hole, Thomas. <laughs> right? How about this one? You can stick your finger the whole way through. And you can just about see that John, who's there also being like, oh, oh I'll do it. <laughs> He's seen, heard, and touched Jesus. And so the things he tells you about eternal life and about the resurrection are true. That's the requirement for apostles. Now, this is the part that we want to try and get through. How is Matthias chosen? By lots. By lots. There's more to it than that, right? Which is what Pastor Moline's going to talk about. Um, because we do the same sort of things today to make sure someone is the right pastor that they did back then. So they chose lots. And this is a little weird to start with because lots of times in the scriptures, choosing lots is to discover who's done something wrong or to divvy up spoils. Like if we took over Omaha, we took all their stuff, we would divide it up by drawing lots, right? Vicar gets to pick first. And then after that, pastor gets to pick. Um, or you do that like at Christmas time, right? When you play White Elephant, who goes first? We'll draw a name out of a hat, right? Okay? Um, it can be a bad thing. But in this particular case, it is a good thing, and it reflects what God teaches about priests serving, uh, about people being placed into offices in the church. So we see that. Let's look at 1 Chronicles, uh, 1 Chronicles 24. Doing a lot of flipping today, so 1 Chronicles 24. And you can see here, we don't have time to read it all. This is King David, and this is recording when he organized all of the priests who were going to serve in the yet unbuilt temple. And it starts with organizing the priests. And this is where um, this is part of our schedule for Christmas. We see here um, David organizes when each tribe uh, not tribe clan, each clan of the tribe of Levi is to serve in the temple. Which is how we know when Christmas is because of Zechariah being chosen to serve. Okay? So he, he divides them up, and the way that he does it is he draws their names out of a hole. He does lots. And then the next thing he does, and this is in chapter 25. What's your headline say there? Organizing the musicians. Organizes the musicians. And he does it in the same way. 
And then 26, people got to guard the gates to the temple. How are you going to decide who does it when? Well, you draw lots. What's that allow you to do? Vote. Who to vote? The, the other disciples. Okay. I, I, I don't think... Uh, I don't think the other disciples are voting, or, or even in the Old Testament, those people. Who's the one who gets to say if you draw out of the hat? God. God, right? We don't give Vicar more say because he wants to have Christmas off, and he puts more money in the offering plate. But we just draw it out of the hat, and then who's getting to speak? God. Okay? So that's why they draw lots. Okay? But they also pray. Yep, yeah, we're getting there. Okay? Uh, letter B. <laughs> letter B. Note the prayer. <laughs> who does Peter and the church believe is the one who places Matthias in the office? This is uh, in the prayer. Okay? So, verse 24. They prayed, and Peter said... You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show us which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry that Judas turned from. Who do they believe is choosing the apostle? God. God. Now, did they put everybody's name in the, the pot? Just two. Just two. Why those two? Okay? Because they are qualified. They meet the requirements. Okay? It's not a self-appointed position. Matthias didn't say, I should be the replacement. Justus didn't say, I should be. Who said that they were qualified? Well, that the other Christians said, these guys are qualified. They're eyewitnesses. They are uh, approved by the church. They have the education. That's part of the eyewitness part. Okay? So they are... What's that? They meet the requirements. They meet the requirements. These two guys, God, meet all the requirements. And then they let who choose? God. God. Okay? This is the same thing that we do now. Okay? Vicar is currently in the midst of his seminary training. We send him off for four years to try and learn everything that there is to know about Christian theology and how to be a pastor, how to preach sermons, how to lead Bible studies, how to make sure the doctrine that you lead in the Bible studies and sermons is correct, we educate all people who are going to be eligible to be pastors. Not only that, then, even if you get the degree from the seminary, can you become a pastor? You have to be called. Who does the calling of a pastor? The church. And we say, who through the church? God. God. Not only that, the church, before he's able to get a call, makes sure that he is qualified by examining him. Okay? Vicar, how does that happen? Uh, there's several professors, a board of professors that are chosen, and you get to choose some of them as well, and they all will sit you down and examine you, ask you questions, test your theological viewpoints. Yeah, they sit you down and they say, okay, you're going to graduate from seminary. You've been here for four years. Explain in detail dispensational premillennialism and why it's a bad teaching. And you do. And then they say, okay, tell me why the genus idiomaticum and the genus myostaticum are important for our understanding of the nature of Christ. And then you have to answer it. And then they say, explain why we only baptize babies. You have to answer it. And they go through as much as they can. I don't know, it was two hours when I was doing it. Is that what it is now? I don't know how long it is. 
So they educate you. They examine you to make sure you know what you're talking about. Then they call you. And then if you're called, and only then, you can be ordained or made, put into the office of the pastor. That's what they do for Matthias, right? He was educated because he watched all these things with Jesus. They examined him and said, this guy's qualified, and so is this guy, Justus. And then they called him by drawing lots, and only after they had done all those things did they ordain him or place him in the office by laying on hands. Okay? So you see, we do the same thing. We don't draw out of the hat. Maybe we should, right? <laughs> um, but we do the same thing. We make sure everybody is educated, examined, um, called, and then we ordain them to be a pastor. Not everybody makes it. Even if somebody wants to be a pastor, if they don't meet the education requirements, or if they are examined and are teaching something wrong, or don't understand something the right way, then they don't become a pastor. Okay? Vicar Golden was the one who was really nervous about it the last month or two that he's here. He kept saying, what should I study for the examination? What should I study for the examination? <laughs> Not because he, I mean, he knew all the stuff, but he knew that that was the next step. The examination before you can receive a call. Isn't it kind of like when you're confirmed? And we had questioning before the elders of the church when I was confirmed. And to make sure that you understood the doctrines of the church, right? It, it is similar because but we do want people who are members of the church to know what we believe and to believe the same thing so that we are united. It's that on steroids to become a pastor. But it's not just something that we came up with. It's what they did for Matthias. We're going to see the same thing with Stephen when we get to St. Stephen. They educate, examine, call, and then ordain to place someone in an office in the church. Okay? We don't draw the names out of the hats anymore. Maybe we should. I know a church in Minnesota that the way they choose their officers for the year is they draw their names out of the hat. These are the guys in our congregation that meet the requirements for being an elder. We need two more elders, and they draw their names out of the hat. And those two guys are elders. These are the people that meet the requirements for being Board of Education. They draw the names out of the hat. Is that an acceptable method? Absolutely. Um, is it the required method? No. Okay. So instead of drawing names out of the hat, here at Good Shepherd, what's the process? We have a call committee. We get names of people who are educated and examined and eligible for a call as a result. The list is weeded through, I, I don't know, did you come up with a short list, or did you have a long list? A couple of years, I know. We had a voters meeting, didn't we? We have a voters meeting where you have the list, and, we are able to vote. and you talk about it, and you vote. And whoever gets the most votes, then you're stuck with it. <laughs> um, that's the call, then. And God works through the church for the call. And once I accept the call or receive the call, then I'm placed into the office. Or if it's my first call, like we'll be here for Vicar, assuming he passes, um, then he'll be ordained into the office. Okay. Questions? Okay. I, I have Yes. Um, when a person receives a call, they, they're able to accept or decline calls. Because, I should 
caveat to things, right? When you're a pastor who's already ordained and you receive a call, you have a problem because you can only have one call at a time. And now you have two. And so you have to choose which call is the one you're going to go serve. And you're completely free to make that decision. And then you choose one, and that's where you go, and then the other place has to call someone else. When you are at the seminary, you get a call, and you are completely free to decline that call, but you will not get a second call if you decline your first call. So keep that in mind, Vicar. Whatever they call you to in the first place, if you desire to be a pastor, you will accept it. Does that answer? Yeah. Yep, yep. And that's here in the voters' assembly. Uh, like I said, I think there's a call committee. They get a long list of names. I think they would narrow it down to a short list. Bring the short list here. And if, you know, Barb wanted. Fred Johnson to be on the list, and he wasn't on the short list, she can nominate to have him placed back on there, and, and it's a whole process. The process that we follow in each congregation, we have freedom in. What's the reason that we have that whole process? For good order. So that Karen Kamen doesn't come in and start body slamming people who wanted to call someone else than the one she wanted, and then Leonard's throwing chairs, you know. So we have a process to keep it orderly for calling pastors. How's a pastor's name get on the call list? How's a pastor's name get on the call list? <laughs> that can come in all sorts of ways. People from the congregation can nominate someone. The district presidents, who are the pastors that oversee the wider areas, um, can place names on lists. Um, what should not happen is a pastor should never go directly to a congregation and say, you should call me. <laughs> That's not what should happen. Um, but through district presidents, members of the congregation, other district presidents, like the Wyoming district guy, might say, Pastor so-and-so uh, needs to be shook up a little bit, so consider him. He's a good pastor, but he needs to change. So in this process, through the church, in many different ways, names get placed on call lists. Um, for first calls from the seminary, the district presidents get together, and they say, these are all the congregations that are calling a seminary uh, seminary to be a pastor, and these are all the seminarians that we have available. And then they say, okay, who do you want? <laughs> and they, they arm wrestle there for the very first calls. But after that, you, you know, like so, if, um, what's the church down the road? Is, is there a Redeemer here in town, right? Yes. So if say Redeemer needed a pastor, and um, they're in the English district, but they're still That's here right. in Lincoln. That's right. I might say, Oh, so-and-so that I know would be a perfect fit. You should consider him. That might be how his name gets on the list. So there's, it's really random how names get put on lists. Mm -hmm. Well, can't any of them ask sometimes if they, if they need a move? Can't they put their name on the list? If a pastor feels like he needs to move, the way that it works is he tells his district president and the district president then can go and tell other district presidents that this guy would be a good choice. Or a choice. <laughs> the important part that is scriptural is the education, the examination, or the qualify, the call, and then the laying on of hands and ordination. Those things should happen every single time because that's what scripture teaches. If somebody does not pass the examination, can they go back and study some more and then come do it again or not? Is it one time shot? It depends on the reason. If it's if it is a general knowledge problem, 
Lots of times they'll be given a particular class to take, to take care of that. Sometimes that's not the reason they don't pass the examination. Sometimes they don't pass it because they're, they have a drinking problem. Sometimes they don't pass it because they don't get out of bed and do what they're supposed to do. Sometimes they don't pass it because it could be lots of those sorts of reasons. So, so it just it's, 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 there's more to it to be certified. Because the church wants to make sure that when I show up here, that you're not going to find me in the parking lot on Sunday morning, passed out with, you know, a bottle of whatever, communion, <laughs> communion wine in my hands. Because it happens. Okay? If it's just an education problem, sometimes they get a second chance. If it's a bigger issue theologically, say, I just don't believe infants should be baptized, then they won't get a call. Um, some, in my class, there was a guy who did not um, pass the examination because Child Protective Services had kept coming to his house because they thought his his uh, one-year-old wasn't, what was the word, malnourished, there we go, malnourished, because there was that issue that we can't send this guy to a congregation. Well, um, all those things are considerations because the seminary wants to make sure you guys as congregations don't have problems when we show up. So, um, hopefully you don't, right? So what if they found out there was a medical reason for the malnourishment? Would they then consider him if they could clear him, so to speak, or did they just drop him like a hot potato? They work with every person as best they can because they want to send people, but they want to send people who meet the requirements the correct way. There's more, more requirements than what we read in the book of Acts. Husband of one wife. Not liable to uh, be angry. Um, uh, boy, Vicar, uh, is it in Timothy or Second Timothy? Um, and I think it may be in Titus too. Is that right? Yeah. There's a list of requirements, and they, they try to take those seriously to a certain extent. Now the problem is: is any pastor perfect? No. 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 Not besides you. Not. In, uh, later on in the book of Acts, uh, Herod puts on this fancy shimmering garment and everyone flatters him and says, you look like you're a god. And he did not deny it. And as a result, worms ate his guts while he was still alive and he died. So, Vicar says, perfect like me, I will gladly deny it. <laughs> Rather than be eaten alive by maggots. All right. We'll get to that later. <laughs> We're a little over time, so I should close this with the Lord's Prayer, and then uh, we'll, we'll actually pick up a session for next week. Let's pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory.